Hello and welcome to The World as We Know It, a history and geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 sovereign states. My name is Kiki. And my name is Brad. And as always, we are your hosts. This week, our discussion is on the nation of... Japan! Japan! Let's begin with some overall thoughts and our initial familiarity ratings before our research. Brad, you, you take off. Um, all right, so my initial familiarity rating for Japan is going to be a six. I think I'm pretty familiar with the country, especially their culture. Um, I think they have an extremely um, prevalent and um, visible culture, especially in the United States. I think I've consumed a lot of media from there. I think I know a little bit about their history, and it's one of those places that top of my list as far as places I'd like to visit. And so overall thoughts are I'm really excited to learn more about it and talk about discussion, especially cultural discussion. Kiki? I feel you. I'm going to put my stuff in. <laughs> okay. Leave it in. Leave it. It's fine. I'm going to put my stuff, um, my familiarity at a five um, because I, I was really into consuming Japanese media for a significant portion of my youth. And it's still something I enjoy now. Um, so I did watch a lot of anime. I was hella into Pokemon. Hell yeah. Which, as we both know, is the pinnacle of Japanese history. Everything you need to know about Japan, you can learn from Pokemon, right? That's correct. That's a joke for those who don't know that I'm joking. Uh, but I also read, you know, a lot of things about Japan when I was younger just to, like, satisfy that interest. Uh, and I, I feel I don't want to give myself more than a five because of the extent of their history. I know yep. Japanese history is very, very dense. And after my research, it is, let me tell you, even more dense than I thought. But I felt like I got a good grasp on at least like the basic concepts of Japanese culture, um, some recurring things that happen. Uh, and a lot of the things I read now that have to do with Japan in the novels and the nonfiction texts that I read gives a broader picture of what life in Japan's like today. And we'll get more to that during our book discussion too, uh, more in our culture discussion. There's just so much to talk about. I will say that I was pretty nervous. Japan is our first uh, quote unquote big country for this podcast. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like this will make or break us. I'm worried a little bit about sounding like a middle school book report. We might lose our 12 viewers, Kiki. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Everything's in the balance. We do have 28 Facebook likes, and I will be monitoring to see wow. how many drop off. The big time. Let's monetize now. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, uh, Travelocity sponsor? ZipRecruiter, hit us up. Hey, uh, um, anyway, we're not going to give any more free advertising out on this podcast. But anyway... Only for Pokemon. Yeah, only for Pokemon, because frankly, they deserve it. Yeah, they do. Uh, after this, Brad and I are probably going to play Pokemon Go for a few hours. Maybe not. Nope. Yeah, we won't have to do that. <laughs> but anyway, so when we go through the history, when I tell the history, I spend about a week on it, and that's just not nearly enough. I feel like we could have a whole other podcast just dedicated to Japanese history, uh, but we only have, I think this will probably be like a little bit of a longer episode. I mean, I we might knock know. on one hour. You might knock on that door. Yeah, we might we might knock on the door of one hour. Uh, so I'm trying to do as much justice as I can with as 
being someone who's unfamiliar with the history up to this point uh, and give a good full picture without getting too far into anything because when I was doing my research, I ended up in a lot of research. Yeah. yeah, some research <laughs> rabbit holes where you're just like, oh, I can't learn this without learning how this goes yeah. or how this ends. So you might uh, listen in part of <laughs> part of my history that I'll get into more things than other things, but also I finished it like maybe an hour ago. So I really did feel the pressure to wrap it up around <laughs> around modern history. Uh, all right. So Brad is going to give us a snapshot of Japan before we take off into the history. Brad, why don't you? All right. So let's just get into Japan like at a glance. Um, so the other names for Japan are uh, Nippon or Nihon. And this comes from the kanji for Japan, which is two of those um, characters. And the first one means sun and the second one means origin. So... Um, this is where you get kind of the Land of the Rising Sun moniker that we know in the West. Oh, that's why I didn't know that. But Japan means like the origin of the sun in those two characters, um, and that's the Nippon. So Japan, as you probably know, it's a sovereign East Asian nation in the Pacific Ocean. Technically, it's a stratovolcanic archipelago made up of over... You mean archipelago? Archipelago. Archipelago. It doesn't matter. Keep going. <laughs> I learned it different. Uh, made up of over nearly 7,000 islands. And there's 6,852. Ranging from the biggest, which is that mainland island of Honsu, to little tiny ones in the south. Um, so there's no official language. Of course, the national language of Japan is Japanese. Uh, but there's officially 11 regional languages. And these 11 regional languages are the Ainu Itak, the Amami Oshima, uh, Kikai, Kunigami. Oh, me? Just kidding. Because Kikai sounds a little like Kiki. Kiki. Keep going. I keep interrupting. <laughs> this is going to be such a long recording, guys. Uh, the Mikayo, uh, Okinawan, Okinarabu, uh, Tokunoshima, Yayama, Yonaguni, and Yoran. So this is 11 regional languages. Um, the capital and largest city of Japan is Tokyo. The area of the country is 377,972 square kilometers, while the population is uh, 126,672,000 people. That makes it the 10th most populous country in the world. The demonym for people from Japan are the Japanese people, and accordingly, the ethnic groups are 98.5% Japanese, 0.5% uh, Korean, 0.4% Chinese, and then others. The religion makeup of the country is 51.82% Shinto, um, and I have a few notes about that uh, in particular for the Shinto religion. Um, well, it is the largest religion in Japan, um, only a small percentage of people would actually identify them sh themselves as like Shintoists. Um, this is due to, primarily due to the fact that Shinto has different meanings in Japan. Um, a lot of people, um, they, visit, they attend Shinto shrines. Um, and they, but they don't really belong to like Shinto organizations or like they don't, there's not like a formal ritual like there is in like Christianity, like baptism to become Shinto. Um, so Shinto membership is often estimated. Um, so going back, the second most populous religion in Japan is Buddhism with 34.9%. Uh, 4% are additional sects of the Shinto religion. 2.3% is Christianity and 7% of the population give no answer to the question of what religion do they practice. Um, as far as the government and politics in the country, they have a unitary, parliamentary, constitutional mon monarchy. So you can say that five times fast if you like. The unitary, parliamentary, constitutional monarchy, Brad? Yes, it rolls off the tongue. <laughs> they have an emperor, um, Akihito. And I could know more about this, but from 
what I've seen at a tertiary glance, it seems like he's really only a ceremonial head of state like the Queen of England. Is that right, Kiki? Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, okay. Actually, the... Uh, actually, Japan- Brad, you dumb butt. <laughs> yeah, actually, Brianne. I was just going to say that the uh, Japanese imperial family or their their monarchy is the oldest monarchy in the world. Oh, snap. Um, and I think Akihito is 125th in his line on the way that they have uh, transferred power for centuries. Snap. Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about more of that in my We'll get into that later. That sounds fascinating. Um, the prime minister of Japan is Shinzo Abe. And the deputy prime minister is Taro Aso. So Japan is made up of eight different regions. Um, and in those eight regions, there are 47 different prefectures. Um, among these eight regions, um, four of them are like those largest big islands you'd see. So Honsu, which is the main island. Um, Hokkaido, which is the top, the nor- northernmost island. And then uh, Kyushu and Shikoku. Uh, and then Okinawa Island is the southernmost part of Japan. So it goes from the north in Hokkaido to south Okinawa. My brother um, was stationed in Okinawa. And many of our listeners in the future, when we have more of them, yeah, probably tons. will have know, some, know someone who was at a naval base in Okinawa. I can't wait to hear the reviews one day from these attractive people. <laughs> <laughs> so the National Foundation date of Japan, and I'm interested to hear Kiki's thoughts on this later, is February 11th, uh, 660 BCE. I didn't know they had, like, February kind of, like, dates. Oh, they don't? Back then. So oh, they is... didn't then, but it's a good estimate. Okay. Just struck me as odd. Based on a, a Western Gregorian, Gregorian calendar? Gregorian or Julian calendar? Whatever calendar that we used. I thought the Julian calendar was, like, the day in the year that we're at. Oh. So, like, the total number. Um, but it doesn't super matter. It's yeah, not we'll very relevant to this podcast. So the currency of Japan is the yen. And just a little note about the economy. The country has the world's third largest economy, that's by nominal GDP, and the world's fourth largest largest economy by purchasing power parity. It's also the world's fourth largest exporter and the fourth largest importer. So they are, in terms of you know economic terms, they are a great power. They, they're making money moves. Oh, we'll figure out how they got there, too. <laughs> um, the anthem, which you heard a little bit of, is called um, Kim Gayo. And that translates to His Imperial Majesty's Reign. I, mean, I think it's a very pretty national anthem. I, I heard it a lot this past week listening to them, uh, listening to it before the Japan played soccer in the World Cup. Oh, yep. That's still happening. It is. I didn't mean that to sound as bitter as it did. <laughs> <laughs> That's still going on. Um, so. And also we'll learn about uh, Kim Gayo. I guess I'll just spoiler alert. It, no, it's no. It's from a... La, 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 oh, la, Never la. mind. We'll just get I there. Want, I want only the hot takes in the middle of history. And we're going to get right into it, because Kiki, you, want, you ready to go? Yeah. All right, everybody, buckle in. Uh, if you are if you need a break, I would just say pause now and then come back in, because this is going to take a while, and I would not <laughs> recommend any interruptions, because it's going right. to go as fast as I can do it while still doing it justice. <gasps> okay. So the myth... myth I already <laughs> messed it up. <laughs> the, the, myth, the mythological history of Japan. So I decided to start with the mythology. Um because it has such significance in Japanese history and in Shinto history. Okay. So we're going to start there, and then we'll get into the physical history that we know later. That's cool. So this was written in the Kojiki, which was published in 1712, which is the first, like, one of the first Japanese books. So the mytho- myth mythological creation story of Japan is that in the beginning, the universe was immersed in a beaten and shapeless kind of matter, um, also referred to as chaos, 
just in silence. And later, there were sounds indicating movement of particles. And with this movement, light and the lightest particles roved to the top. Um, and they were as fast as light could be. They could go any higher. And therefore, light was created at the top of the universe. And below it, the particles that first formed the clouds and then heaven, um, which was to be called Takamagahara, or the high plane of heaven. And the rest of the particles that had not ridden, risen formed a huge mass, dense and dark, to be called the Earth. So I'm trying. That's it's a good story. <laughs> All right. So after that, the first five deities formed. Uh, then they kind of just disappeared. They were sexless. They were ageless, and they didn't do anything. They just kind of were formed and then left, like an ocean wave, I would say. And then another two formed, disappeared. And then the next 10 were born in male and female pairs. They were brother and sister and also husband and wife. Uh, and then two of these, Izanagi and Izanami, created the Japanese archipelago when they dipped a jeweled spear into the sea. And then they also gave birth as a couple to a number of other gods. And there's a lot more to the story. I definitely re recommend looking it up if you're into mythology. Um, in my notes, I have a lot of other stuff happened because I was going to include a lot more. But this isn't going to be a tops hour long podcast, I hope. <laughs> and if I really got into it, it could take yeah. days. So the ancient history, the physical history as we know it, starts in the Paleolithic age when people crossed the a land bridge from mainland Asia and then populated the islands. The Jomon period, which is around 14,000 BCE to 300 BCE, is named for the distinctive pottery that was created this time. So the people who created this pottery were hunter-gatherers using stone and wooden tools until about 5,000 BCE when the first agricultural sediment start, settlements start to appear and then rice cultivation appears in 600 BCE. So they they develop pretty well, very similar to other cultures. It's actually called, Joman is the name for the rope-like design on the pottery that they made. That's neat. And the Joman people are genetically linked to the modern Ainu people that you mentioned at the beginning of Japan. So there's people who've been on the island or have ancestors on the island since its mm -hmm. very beginning, which is a cool fact. The next period we have is the Yayoi period, which is 300 BCE to 250 BCE, or CE, excuse me. Uh, it's named for the distinctive red pottery in the Yayoi district of what is now Tokyo. And this is like the significant advancement. So we see the Joman pottery first, and then we see that it's, it's very much changed. And that's how we know it's a distinctive other period. There was an influx of immigrants from the Korean Peninsula and China, uh, and they brought over a ton of new technologies, uh, better farming techniques, irrigation, things like that, which allowed specialized labor to emerge, which if you're familiar with how civilizations form is very similar to everything else that we know. It's, it's how things happen. It's almost like immigrants make things better. Uh, it's a hot take, you be careful. You're right. This is not a political podcast. <laughs> um, but those special, specialized laborers uh, started becoming social classes um, and formed into what would eventually be small kingdoms. So what we'll see a lot in the future of Japan and in Japan's past is feudalism. So this is kind of where we can see some of the beginnings of where that might start mm -hmm. is having these the social stratification um, in agricultural communities. The Confederation of Small States in the south and west of Japan were called the WA, and they started reaching out for international development during this time too. So they were going to China um, and interacting with some Korean people uh, and bringing over some different ideas, trading artifacts uh, and knowledge that way. 
So that is very significant. Uh, and I feel like I made a whole other page for this very significant historical figure called Queen Himiko. She ruled between 189 and 248 CE, ruled over 100 kingdoms, um, but that's also debated she could have just been the queen of the most powerful one, which, you know, yeah. tater-totter. <laughs> she was known to see, send embassies into Chinese ter- territory uh, and to bring back knowledge to develop her people and her agriculture. She was also a shamaness, uh, which was common at this time for rulers and shamanesses to be uh, active public figures. But she was never married, and she lived in a castle with a thousand female servants. That's Uh, a lot of servants. That's a lot of lady servants to have around. Uh, And records exist of her in Japanese, Chinese, and Korean texts. Her existence and her role is still a hot debate over how much influence she had over Japanese history and when exactly she was there. Um, But I think she was kind of a bad bitch in a good way. Uh, and her role and like her historical significance also shows the role and duties of women in Japan before Chinese influence. Hmm. So before the rise of Confucianism and Buddhism and other big influencers that would change Japanese culture, this is a good indicator that uh, women could be in power and women could be good in power. Uh, she was also a featured plotline in the latest Tomb Raider movie. It came out in this summer. With Alicia Vikander? Yep. Oh, um, and I actually have here... Uh, a quote from one of the texts about her because I, I, I thought it was super interesting and like ladies getting in charge. Anyway, so it's a quote from Tsunoda in 1951, so based on his translation. The country formerly had a man as a ruler. For some 70 or 80 years after that, there were disturbances in warfare. Thereupon the people agreed, uh, uh, thereupon the people agreed upon a woman for their ruler. Her name was Himiko. She occupied herself with magic and sorcery, bewitching the people. So mature in age, yeah. She remained unmarried. She had a younger brother who assisted her in ruling the country. And after she became ruler, there were a few who saw her. She had 1,000 women as attendants, but only one man. Bad bitch. (laughs) (laughs) He served her food and drink and acted as a medium of communication. She resided in a palace surrounded by towers and stockades with armed guards in a state of constant vigilance. I didn't have this in my notes, but I also read that, like, after she died, a 13-year-old was appointed to take over because I feel like, you know, she just did such a good job. They're like, yeah, let's keep up with this women ruling thing. They seem to know what they're doing. Also, I don't know much about Star Wars, but I'm like, isn't that a Queen Amidala thing where they follow a young woman as like, we can edit that part out. I don't think it's that fleshed out in Phantom Menace. That movie has too many problems to have a a fleshed out monarchy in the boo. Anyway, I just remembered uh, Queen Amidala and what's her name, Natalie Portman. Padme. Yep. Anyway, it's not important in Japanese history. <laughs> not even a little bit. Scratch the record. Continue. Uh, <laughs> all right. So the next historical period is called the Asuka period, which was named for the then capital of the main uh, cultures of Japan. We're still pretty broken up at this point. Um, and the most significant ruler in this time was Prince Shotoku, who reformed the government in a Chinese style and created a 17 article constitution. So this is the first constitution we see in Japan. Um, that really starts to structure what the country will look like, even though it's very broken up. In 645, the Fujiwara clan staged a coup, restructured the government again, still in the Chinese system, but they implemented a new taxation system and gave the emperor absolute authority. Right, right. Um, yeah, well, we'll, we'll see um, how that absolute authority works out when the Fujiwara clan is around, Brad, because... You know those Fujiwaras. <laughs> we, we will... <laughs> <laughs> we will see them, and we will get to know them pretty well. 
Uh, during the Asuka period, Buddhism started flourishing thanks to the influx of Chinese immigrants and scholars coming to the country. And that helped to elevate Japan's status among other Buddhist countries like China and Korea. Um, because once you see, you know, your little brother doing the same things, you're like, hey, you're doing great. That's not condescending. That's just how it was. Anyway, there's a lot of, of war and skirmishes with these neighbors, too. A lot of clans on mainland Asia that they were fighting with. A lot of infighting on the islands. Um, so it's not... Is this is this like the period where there's like shoguns, or is that later? That's later. Okay, sorry. It's all I know, really. So um, No, it's, it's very <laughs> significant, too. And I feel like... Uh, I want to say that like shoguns have always been like some part of it, but this isn't where they really come into being a okay. huge thing. Just wondering. Um, and anyway... Another notable figure is Empress Suiko. She supports the arts, literature, and music, and lends her name to an alternative name for this period called the Suiko period. So we can see a little bit of cultural development at this time. Next period is the Nara period from 1710 to 794, so named for the capital at the time. Uh, and this time we see the heightened presence of and the ability of a centralized government. So a one larger administrative body, bureaucracies get bigger here and they start making appointments um, through family titles and through ability and they kind of make a comprehensive government at this time. Taxes get super bad when Emperor Shomu decides to build a temple in every province. So he wants to build Buddhist temples everywhere um, and he's using taxpayer money to do it and so everyone's pretty strained. Um, and that they, some scholars believe that at this time that's why there weren't very many other developments because no huh. one had no money. Um, but they did have a lot of temples and not just Buddhist temples. They still had Shinto temples. One in every province I hear. Yeah. I mean, that was the goal. <laughs> Hopefully it reached it at enormous cost. Anyway, significant time for some literature, including Japanese and Shinto lore, mythologies, and history. So actually the book that we talked about from the mythology, the Kojiki came out at this time. Cool. And the Nijon Shoki and the Manyashu Poetry Anthology came out. So, um, written word and literature are happening. There is also, uh, this is a big time for crop failures and famine, um, but this kind of dip from that lack of, of food and stuff sets the stage for Japan's golden age, which is ushered in by Emperor Kamu. So the golden age is the Heian period. A lot of us are familiar with that. It comes up a lot in anime. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this is also the beginning of Japan's medieval period. And when we say medieval period, too, uh, it's not necessarily the same as European medieval periods. It's not the Dark Ages. There's a lot of similarities, and there are a lot of differences as well. Um, so we'll cover that in later podcasts, too, because I didn't include a lot of notes on the differences in this one, because this is the Japan episode. We haven't had a European country yet. Yeah, either. but we have not had a European country to, with which to compare. So anyway... So from 794 to 1185 CE, uh, named for the Heian-kyo, which is the capital of what is president or present-day Kyoto. Kyoto itself actually means the capital city because it was the capital city of Japan oh, cool. for a long period of time. Uh, the government has a finger in every pie, if you will, a sprawling government. And <laughs> our boys, the Fujiwaras, are still here <laughs> to monopolize the government uh, despite the emperor's divine authority. Uh, I have a whole slide on them too, so we'll get into them later because honestly they remain big players in this in this story for significant, significant amount of time. Hugely influential clan. 
But anyway, in this time, Japan becomes a little bit more isolationist. They still carry on trade with China and some neighbors, but for the most part, they're they're focusing on them. They're doing self-care. <laughs> uh, characteristics of this period um, is a strengthened warrior military class. So we're not in Shojin yet, but this is what's going to lead up to it, yeah. um, is that we have samurais coming out. The noble classes, which control the land now, um, so feudal manners are called showin for those who aren't familiar. So that's how the land is divided, and then peasant classes will work the farmland. And at this time, most of the land was was operated by feudal lords, but they didn't know how to do it. And so, um, like, if they weren't maximizing their land, if they weren't keeping people employed, people were stealing, people were doing a lot of crimes to try to pay the effing high taxes. Yeah. Um, and then a rise of the military class kind of goes back in to restructure that. So that's when we start to see that there. Um, and this is another push away from centralist government into feudalism once more. Uh, I also just have asterisk, motherfucking samurais. It's an important asterisk. It's really good. And One also, of the better notes so far of the show. <laughs> um, and Heian, for everyone's reference, means peace. Because this was an unusually long peace time for Japan. Uh, I think 250 years of no external conflicts and not that much internal conflict. So here's more on the Fujiwara clan. So they stayed in pro close proximity to imperial power by marrying daughters to emperors. So this was like, they were always around, but they never actually tried to take over the government. I have in my notes, like House Lannister. Hear me roar. Um, and the one of the patriarchs of this family over time, his name was Fujiwara no Michin. Michinaga, excuse me, it'll, we're working on it. Also, just so you know, I know that no, when there's a, it's like a word, it means like of, so we're talking okay, about yeah. like Michinaga of, of the house Fujiwara. Fujiwara. Yeah. And I have no, Taiwan F, grandfather to three emperors, six empresses, de facto ruler. Wow. So he was kind of always over their shoulder, just like governing. Um, he, Power behind the throne yeah, kind of stuff. He, it was dead. Like they say that like the Fujiwara clan was the operating body behind a puppet government. And they were always just there. Um, and as since the daughters were married to the emperors, they were the wives and mothers of emperors. They pushed family loyalty. So it's like, you will listen to your grandfather because I'm your mom and you're like two years old. <laughs> and you, no one else will tell you what to do. And if you can't listen to family, you don't have anybody. And so that's kind of how it ran for a really long time. The Fujiwaras were all over court. Uh, and it wasn't until Emperor Go Sanjo, um, who was not related to the family at all, pulled away from the from the family and focused on personal rule and power in 1068. So they just kind of were always there. And like even after he pulls away from the family, they're still around. We'll see them resurface again in later periods. Uh, some big cultural significant markers of the Heian period is that the world's first novel, The Tale of Genji by Murasaki Shikibo. Shikibo? Shikibu, excuse me, yeah. is published at this time. Shikibu was a Fujiwara, and the characters are based on her family and her time in the court. Well, that's cool. Um, also, we see in this period, the only people who could read and write were nobles, and so they were reading and writing about what nobles like, which Makes is sense. other nobles. Uh, the lyrics for the national... This was the spoiler I was talking about. The lyrics for the Where's modern that? national anthem come from a Heian Waka poem. So, the we know that the, the anthem that we were listening to actually is from this like ancient text in the Heian period. The samurai and military elite, samurai for your reference, are military nobility in the officer caste. Uh, they existed in earlier periods, but this is when they'd come to 
be the icons of Japanese history that they are now and come to that full power and understand the full terms of the title. I also have in here, Brad, I know that you remember this. Yeah. Um, in that episode of Pokemon where Jesse and Misty <laughs> both want to get that full selection of Poke dolls, which are the Pokemon dressed up in costumes oh, and a, oh, yes. a full set. Oh, yes, of course. So those are actually, those are, that's based off of a real Japanese tradition called the Hinamatsuri, which is the doll festival in which the dolls are dressed in Heian garb and in outfits. Um, so that's another just thing that like <laughs> I remember watching when I was a kid and like I remembered those outfits because they were very different than what I would expect totally. as a as a young kid without any interest or any knowledge at the time of Japanese history. But anyway, good Pokemon <laughs> reference. It won't be the last one. So the late Heian period, um, because nobles weren't so good at land management and the rise of crime needed to be tackled by military power as previously mentioned. And that's when the military class really comes in, starts to take over in... 1180, the capital moves to Kobe, then moves back to Heianpyo. So that's kind of like an indicator of more instability that you have to move the capital twice in one year. Come on, guys. They moved uh, the capital a whole lot. I mean, they, they, they sure did. And it's not even going to be the last time they move it. In 1185, the first shogun, military dictator, there it is, takes over. Um, and the emperor basically assumes the figurehead role where they're okay. acknowledging that, like, the Emperor doesn't do much, especially when, like, the Fugu War is around. Uh, there's also this period where there's a, just a few cloistered emperors who just, they were Buddhist monks. They didn't go out much. They just kind of, huh. they just kind of didn't do it. Uh, Zen Buddhism gets big, so people focus on enlightenment. I actually put people who can focus on enlightenment, focus on enlightenment, because I have a, a feeling that poor peasants and farmers aren't going to take some time for spiritual exploration. But if you're a ruling class member, a samurai, or a noble family, maybe you will. Uh, and that takes us to the Genpei War, which was a five-year war in 1180-85. It's the culmination of a decades-long conflict between the Minamoto and Taira clans over dominance in the imperial court. Um, the Minamoto actually staged two rebellions that failed in the past, and then on their third one, it all happened because uh, Taira no Kiyomori... Uh, put his grandson Antoku, who was only two, uh, on the throne. <laughs> baby Empowo. Yeah, he put the baby on the throne <laughs> after the abdication of Emperor Takakura, uh, who, and then Emperor Go Shirakawa's son Mochihito felt that he was being denied his rightful place, you know, because he was a grown man. And they put a baby on the throne <laughs> instead. Um, and then he called for the help of. Minamoto no Yorimasa, uh, who sent out a call to arms to the Minamoto clan and the Buddhist monasteries in May. So this shunned would-be emperor calls for his calls for help from his buddies, the Minamotos and some Buddhist monasteries, um, to get control back over the throne. However, this plot ends with the deaths of Yorimasa and Mochihito. So eh. womp, womp. Womp womp there, but then the end of the Genpei War and the beginning of the Kamakura Shogunate marked the rise to power of the warrior class. So this this whole thing basically ends the Heian period and begins um, a long period of Shogunate or Shogunate uh, yeah. government. So military government from this point on. There's still going to be an emperor, but everything is is run by the samurais, warrior classes, officers, stuff like that. Um, and also this 
marks the gradual suppression of the power of the emperor, who is compelled to govern without effective political or military power, being effectively reduced to a purely symbolical and ceremonial head of state until the Meiji Restoration 650 years later. So I think one of the reasons that we know that the Japanese monarchy is so old is because they didn't have power, hmm. and still really don't, for a very, very long time, um, but have served like a role for their people. I don't think it goes without saying that like having figureheads like that is a strong cultural connection for people uh, and using that influence in other ways. Not a bad thing. Hmm. Anyway... The Kamakura, so from 1185 to 1333, this period is known for the emergence of the samurai and warrior caste. I know I said that in the Heian period, but they just keep getting bigger. Um, and this is like the big push for feudalism in Japan again. So right we're going into division of land, very uh, rigid social hierarchies and stratification. Uh, Minamoto no Yori, Yoritomo's family Led for three generations, followed by uh, several Fujiwaras. Of course. Haven't left. As is their way. Uh, and then some imperial princes did get a chance to govern, but everything was basically supervised by others. Uh, and this is a great rise of military power. And then more Buddhism is brought to the masses. So what used to be basic, basically something for nobles um, and for anybody who had the time to practice a religion, now Buddhism is going towards like farmers and peasants and the majority of the people. So this is a big spread for Buddhism in this time. Next period is the Muromachi period. Uh, and that's 1336 to 1573, significant time period. And it's divided into two cultural areas, the Kitayama and the Higashiyama periods. 1336, Ashikaga Taguchi captures Kyoto and forces Emperor Daigo II to move to a southern court, uh, Yoshino, South Kyoto, doesn't come up again in this podcast. And in 1427, Edo is established. Edo is what will eventually become Tokyo. I've heard about this, the Edo period, yeah. Yeah. Is it Edo? I think it's, I've heard it pronounced Edo. It's Edo. It's probably different. Than well, it's those. E-D-O for anybody listening. Um, I didn't look up a phonetic guide. That was my bad. But we'll call it the Edo. What did you say? You said Edo. We'll call it yeah. that for the rest of the podcast. That's what my anime dubs say. <laughs> I feel like they know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, in 1543, firearms are introduced by shipwrecked Portuguese. Super fun. Uh, in, in 1549, a Catholic missionary, Francis Xavier, arrives in Japan. Which is probably not a good thing. You've seen the movie Silence with Scorsese? Oh, I haven't, but we know that the Christian missionaries in Japan probably won't end up too great when a question missionaries. Mm don't think you wanted to be there being a christian missionary in japan in the we'll middle ages quote unquote yeah, we'll definitely get there <gasps> um so in, in 1573 oda nobunaga overthrows the marumachi bakufu i didn't cover what that means and i also didn't make a note about it so google it bakufu and extends his control all over Japan. I say the takeaway from this period is that there's greater interaction with the west. Um, we also run into some dutch traders and dutch will actually have a chance with japan i heard a fun anecdote that when dutch traders first came to japan they thought they were like unwashed barbarians they wouldn't let them on the mainland they're like keep these guys in the boats we'll it's bring not untrue today <laughs> we'll bring they'll bring the stuff to your boats don't step on our land um yeah but no they are very careful about uh western colonists we'll get into that too but those initial contacts we'll see did change the direction of the country 
The next period is from 1573 to 1600, and it's the Azuchi Momoyama period. I'll say that again. The Ayuchi Momoyama period. Only about, like, you know, 27 years. It's not a super long time. Um, but this was the spectacular time during the transition from medieval to early modern history. That was something I read. That, so um, it was a short period of time, and a lot of things were happening, most notably Japanese unification. So there are three main areas at this time, um, and their leaders are called the Daimyo, and it was Nobunaga, Hideyoshi, and Aiyasu. Uh, and then over a decade, from 1590 to 1600, they kind of get together, they figure it out, that's a bad way to summarize what happened, but again, I can't get into everything. They set aside their differences, Kiki, and they <laughs> yeah, the, found common They overcame uh, a lot of a lot of things, and you know, maybe cultivated a true friendship. Yeah, they buried the katana. Like just... We're more than half. <laughs> yeah, they buried. <laughs> that's a good one. One of them, you know, did anyway. Yeah. Some some seppuku was involved. Um, anyway, Toko <laughs> Toko Gaia. Ayayasu, so the last guy of our three leaders, was the last survivor of this 10-year war. So they, they were friends. They are still fighting with other people. Um, but his, he was the last survivor. And then his victory at the, at his victory at the Battle of Sekigahara basically put him in charge of all of Japan. So Japan has one unified u- leader for like the first time in forever. This takes us into our next uh, historical period called the Edo Period also known as the Tokugawa period. So these are the two names that it's known by, and it's also an extremely influential time in Japan. And this is from 1603 to 1868. So, uh, 250 years. Under the rule of the Tokugawa shogunate, you have something to say? You just said 250. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is... Had some stank on that fitty. All right, here we go. <laughs> Anyway, so this uh, period was characterized by economic growth, strict social order, isolationist foreign policies, stable population growth, uh, no more wars mentality, and popular enjoyment of arts and culture. So this is another 250 years of peace, so another substantial time of peace in Japanese history, except for Christians um, who were either all killed or reconverted by the 1660s. So they said get the fuck out of our country, Christians, or stop being a Christian, which is where it comes up because we talked about that before. They did a lot of martyrdoms, yeah. A lot of martyrdoms, um, a lot of more crucified. It was pretty brutal. Uh, and Yes, the movie Silence by Scorsese is basically about this. Too excruciating detail for three hours. Well, great. Maybe check that out another time. Uh, and I say here also, there's it's just more isolationism. So all the Western connections they made basically tap turns off. They focus on if there are any international relations, other relationships with China and Korea and Manchuria, but they're not. They don't want any interaction with Europeans except for the Dutch trading company uh, and some like very isolated groups of traders. Yeah. And I mentioned before in Edo society and culture that there's a very strict social stratification. So it's complicated, maybe more than in other times. Uh, Clearly, the people with the most power are the ones that are closest to the government and to the imperial family. Uh, Those who are the most well-connected and who own the most land have the most control. But even in this time, the smallest unit that you could have like to have rights as a family so there's no individual rights at all that's interesting yeah that's like the minimum you need to have is to have like a family name uh, and power is you know it dissipates from the top down 
And this time we also have increasing urbanization. So this is an interesting time too, where we might be shifting away from such like a, a prominent agricultural field where people are now moving to cities and they've got some free time, they have free money, and this is where culture starts to thrive too. So things like theater, art, uh, and music and entertainment all become super big. Kabuki theater comes this time. This is also some people consider it like the rise of rise of geisha. If you're familiar with that um, in the culture, artisans all thrive in the Edo period. There's also increased interaction with Dutch traders. So the limited scope of trade that we have with Europe all comes from the Dutch, increases studies of geography, natural sciences, art, languages, mathematics. So everything that's been developing in the Western hemisphere in terms of you know those advancements have made their way to Japan too. They can benefit from those studies without having so many other Europeans around. I saw a cool, um, it was on like some kind of um, like artifacts or like almost like a pawning kind of show, but they said the way you can date a lot of like um, dolls and artwork from this period is if characters with blue eyes start appearing like like a pottery like a glazed um what's the word um ceramic with like blue eyes you can right. tell oh this is after dutch influence because they didn't yeah they have when the white folks showed up yeah that's very interesting I think that's interesting um also the wood panel art of of the great wave that everybody knows about. oh yeah it's yeah. also an emoji that came from this Wait, time it's an emoji yeah from hakusai it's a, at least an apple emoji i don't know about you heathen android users well, i can't speak for all android users but i'll look for it uh so anyway, so that's that's all happening now, and a lot of modern Japanese literature, shows, comics, stuff is all based in the Edo period too. So that and the Heian period are two very significant times for culture growth, and that are very significant to Japanese culture and history that we still see today in many different trends. The decline of the Edo period comes from American naval commander Matthew Perry, so I feel like this is kind of where it starts. That's where we're supposed to put our cue here. We're not playing the Friends theme song. Okay. Um, it's clearly not the actor from Friends. <laughs> uh, Matthew Perry is. Um, but he brings four ships to Edo Bay in 1853 and demands that Japan be open to foreign Western trade and Americans consulship. And they send, I forgot his name, but one of their best guys out. That sounds like a trumpet. Send one of their best guys out to negotiate. And that's, the best deal you could come up with is like, yeah, you can have a consulship, we'll open up trade. Uh, and that's kind of where things start to fall. There's a lot of anti-foreign sentiment that grows from this time that there's really nothing they can do about because this guy with four warships is hanging out on dockside saying that you need to do this or else. Yeah. So they force away under the island and it really Fs up the Japanese economy because the influx of Western goods, so cottons, um, manufactured things, because this is also in the Industrial Revolution for a lot of the Western world, there's a lot of things being mass-produced that flood the Japanese market that decrease the value of Japanese goods. So their money is losing value. Gold is leaving the country like crazy. And people are just getting way more and more angry, but there's nothing they can do about it because of the American power there at this time and the other Western powers that increase their influence. In 1868, Tokugawa Yoshinobu resigns and the Tokugawa dynasty ends and the emperor uh, Meiji is restored. So this is the Meiji restoration that we're going to talk about, which is okay, the next yeah. biggest settlement. Uh, but the capital remains in Tokyo or Edo and the emperor is still considered to have divine attributes. So the Meiji restoration is 
from 1868 to 1912 and is a huge push towards westernization of Japan. It corresponds with the reign of Emperor Meiji, which we mentioned, uh, who's also known as Meiji the Great. Adopted, oh, sorry, I meant he adopted a five charter oath, which made the administration more democratic rather than ruled by like the shogun. Because the shogun would just put A, their friends in charge, B, did kind of what they want, and they had a strong arm military power. So this was a big change towards giving the people more influence of all social classes, not just those upper, upper stratified groups. Uh, they established new ranks for nobility. So instead of military rule and like officer titles, we have more westernized titles for nobility, including prince, marquis, count, viscount, and baron. And the five charter oath that we mentioned uh, has these five rules in it, which, as you can see, like is really... A big change and I feel like it's kind of interesting to see but anyway the first one is the establishment of deliberative assemblies the second is the involvement of all classes in carrying out state affairs third the revocation of sumptuary laws and class restrictions on employment Four, the replacement of quote-unquote evil customs with the quote-unquote just laws of nature and five an international search for knowledge to strengthen the foundations of imperial rule it's imperial rule. Mm -hmm. It's hard to talk because I've been talking for 45 minutes. But anyway, so this big Western push in de democracy is a game changer. And it brings us into the 19th century and what we can now see in modern Japan. We can now uh, see not just through Japanese recordings of history, but Western observers, um, which I'm not necessarily sure is the best way. But it's something that us as Westerners can understand more. Something we're more familiar with, I guess. In this time, we also see... Uh, more Western architecture being built, Western-style streets and clothing. Uh, this is also during the Victor Victorian era in the Western world, so a lot of that shows up in Japan at this time. A lot of it was also, it's missing now because of uh, bombing and stuff. Mm -hmm, yeah. But this was big at the time. Western-based education systems. So before, you could only really get an education if you were upper class, you could afford it, and if you were male... And Western-based education systems were implemented so that there's a public school system for both boys and girls so that it's not simply based on income, although we can still assume that the poorest families still would not send their children to school. And many students were sent abroad to be educated in the United States and Europe. So that was a government-led initiative um, from both countries, the Japanese government and the American and European governments to take in Japanese students to educate them in the Western style and, and ideally send them back, but also that wasn't the case for some. This is also the Industrial Revolution for Japan, uh, which falls a little bit behind the Industrial Revolution in the Western world, but we still see a great growth in textile factories, railways, uh, and factory employment. And the military also modernizes using Western technology as well, which will become especially significant. Did I say especially? Especially. My five, I am. I'm a very smart five-year-old. You could be emperor. I could. <laughs> um, anyway, so that takes us to our next dynasty. So when uh, Meiji the Great passes away, his son, Crown Prince Yoshihito, takes over the crown. And it leads into the Taisho period, which is from 1912 to 1926, fairly short. This is a great time of liberal movement, more dem democratic participation, so not only implementing systems for the people in which to participate, but encouraging them to do so, which we've learned in other places. It's kind of like the next step. You can always say, oh yeah, everyone can vote, but unless you give them the tools, knowledge, yep. and, and resources to vote, they can't do it. 
They fought with the Allied powers, the AKA winning side in World War One. Represent. Um, which brings them into the global sphere in a huge way. And they enter uh, the League of Nations, help to find, found the League of, Na- League of, League of Nations. <laughs> they try to find the League of Nations. They go as a founding member of the League of Nations. There you go. That's what I am trying to say. Um, and they get a permanent seat on the council. Also, a year before that, in 1919, they were part of a big five or the 1919 Peace Conference as a Big Five member. So already a super significant world power. You know, I mean, not relatively long after going global, especially when we look and compare to other countries that were isolationists yeah. before. Uh, I have notes just communism kind of bubbles up because of Russia and communism in China. There are movements to squash it. Doesn't necessarily work, but. It was also like a, it was a Russian-Japanese war in the early part of the 20th century. I remember because Theodore Roosevelt got the Nobel Peace Prize for ending that, or mediating that war in D.C. That's a good note. In 1925, the general election law was passed, so that's not universal suffrage, but sex-elective suffrage. Wait, sex-elective? So only men could vote. Oh, okay. Above the age of 25. So universal suffrage would mean everybody could, but no, it's just men at this time. And then in 1926, Emperor Taisho dies, and then his son, Hirohito, becomes emperor on December 25th. So we most closely associate Hirohito in our Western educations with World War II, uh, and the Showa period is, the, is his reign. That goes from 1926 to 1989. Uh, Showa means... That's a long reign. Wow. Yeah, he's a super long-reigning emperor, I think. Um, his son has lived longer. We'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, Showa itself means radiant Japan or Japanese glory. And I don't want to get too much into World War II during this podcast, but we can definitely assume that like the years leading up to World War II and the years that was happening were wartime. Yeah. Um, not a lot of cultural growth, a lot of Western influence. You had a lot of military buildup in Japan and they had to actually... Um, be very imperialist in their sphere of influence because they needed to actually go south into Indonesia. They needed to like um, take control of some areas so they could have like access to rubber for tires, access to more steel for more like planes. Like they like, there's not much on the actual islands as far as resources goes. So they had to spread out first in order to build up. There was a Japanese Chinese war in this time too, wasn't mm-hmm. there? Um, and then I'm just going to skip ahead to modern Japan in the Heisei period. Uh, which is Hirohito's son, Akihito. He's going to abdicate probably next year in April 2019 and will be succeeded by his son, Crown Prince Naruhito, possibly his grandson, Hisahito, uh, who was born through his second son, Akishono, um, because of their uh, primogeniture laws that are male selective. So uh, the who would be... The next in line would be Princess Aoki, but since she is a lady, it's not looking likely right now. Uh, and then we can follow it up with our discussion. I'm sorry, this part took so long. Thank you so much for your patience. Uh, we're going to take our first break, and then we'll be back for more discussion. Sorry I had a gloss over the past, you know, 70 years, but otherwise... We'll get into it. It'll come back yeah. up in cultural discussion. For sure. We'll see you then, folks. Hey! 
Welcome back to the world as we know it. I'm Brad, and we just heard a lengthy segment of history. Yeah, our... that was a longer history segment than any other of our episodes. All right, well, let's not compare history lengths, Kiki. But um, <laughs> we're going to kick things back off with an all but shorter visit to the flag corner. That's my favorite segment. <laughs> and then after that, I'm going to take the helm and talk about cultural discussion for a little bit. So Kiki, take it away. Okay, so uh, the flag of Japan is a white flag with a crimson circle in the middle. In line with the country's meaning of being uh, sun origin or the land of the rising sun, mm-hmm. the crimson circle does represent a rising sun. And uh, that's about it. That's about the meaning of the flag of Japan. It's a simple flag. I like it. Um, yeah, it's it, recognizable. And it has iconic. changed quite a bit over the past, you know, 100 years, yeah. thousands of years. But it, it means what it means. It's just a good flag. It is what it is. Here, here first, first, folks. All right, well, that was Kiki in the flag corner. <laughs> I'm sorry, Brent. I have been talking for a real long time. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to kick things back off with some cultural discussion. And we purposefully truncated the last tail end of the historical discussion which kind of ended with some 20th century but we didn't really get into the after effects of the second world war we didn't even talk about the um the droppings of the atomic bombs on hiroshima and nagasaki and that's for um um for the purposes of leaving it for now for the cultural discussion because a lot of what i want to get into as far as like japanese culture and westernization especially in america we're so familiar with japanese culture because following um the second world war America had such a large hand in both rebuilding and being a part of um, the reinstitutionalization, reinstitutionalization of Japan on the world stage. And so after those atomic bombs were dropped, that had such a large impact on Japanese culture. And we can see that through the different forms that media and um, you know commentary take, that um, you know, the ideas and the ideology that people take. Um, away from that so for example like the film gojira which is like the first like quote-unquote godzilla movie um the way that movie is set up is that you know it's because of atomic you know interferences and the nuclear age that monsters like this are able to come and attack the japanese mainland and we could even see this in um, different forms of anime that are around today where like attack on titan kind of stuff you have these large creatures and they're attacking human civilization and this can be seen as a um an evolution of this whole going against nature um even in fact one of the main influences for me as far as knowing about japanese culture is uh the films of, of hayao miyazaki and when i was a kid i remember cartoon network here in the united states they showed like a month of miyazaki and they showed one uh, miyazaki film i think each day or each week for a month and having watched all of those, it was my first foray really into like not only anime, but like really good animated films from Japan. And a large um, bevy of his work includes themes that are like against like nuclear energy and atomic warfare, um, especially movies like you know Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind. And actually, um, in my IB film class junior year of high school, I did a film doc. Um, like a like a written assignment film doc where I compared you know Miyazaki films to some Disney films. I found some parallels in like post apocalyptic versions from like Nausicaa, uh, the Valley of the Wind, which is like obviously post atomic like landscapes like wastelands in in the, in the world. And then in Wall-E, you have like a post consumerist like where the capitalism destroys the world as opposed to like warfare. And I kind of did some parallels between those. Um, Brad, I will say about Hayao Miyazaki. With a name like Kiki, I did get quite a few copies of Kiki's delivery service 
It's a great movie. It's fantastic. What have you to say to compare that to Disney? So, let's see. The parallel to Kiki's Delivery Service. So, it's a coming-of-age tale. It actually takes place in Hawaii. So, I would say Lilo and Stitch. You have oh. a, yeah, you have a, you mean you have a Western. Does it play, take place in Hawaii? It does. I thought it was, I always imagined that it, like it started in Japan and that she went to a European country. Well, um, so it doesn't explicitly state that it's supposed to be like, it's kind of a vague Western kind of yeah, like travel, yeah, yeah. but from people look at the maps and stuff and like the coastal outlines, it's definitely Hawaiian islands. Oh, that's interesting. I just decided to put you on the spot there because I wanted to mention that Kiki's delivery service was a significant part of my childhood, so... I've also compared the westernization, industrialization that's apparent in Pocahontas to Princess Monoke's The Valley of the Wind and the death of Pocahontas like... Pocahontas is based on Romeo and Juliet. False. No, true. <laughs> False. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take it away. <laughs> All right. We're going to break it. Pass over this that. This is the Contradictions podcast where I will just challenge everything that Brad said. <laughs> Objection. Um... All right, and so let's see, my next note, um, just continuing with the theme of, like, Japanese film, because that's my favorite part of Japanese culture. Um, I've watched a lot of the works of Akira Kurosawa, the noted Japanese director, especially, like, uh, Seven Samurai, Rashomon, and I think there's still a documentary on Netflix about the um, the, the superstar actor that he used a lot, uh, Mifune. It's a great documentary. It gets into, like, him... Uh, finding his like way into acting as a career and then becoming like, the seminal actor of the of the post-war era. So other hugely influential um, films from Japan include uh, the anime film like Akira um, and like Perfect Blue. Um, it's actually a recent um, Wes Anderson film, Isle of Dogs. I thought was pretty representational of like Japanese culture and really respectful, while still being entertaining from Western perspective. Um, and even in, like, Akira and stuff, which is a famous anime movie, considered, like, by a lot of people to be, like, the best anime movie of all time, there's still that undercurrent of, like, um, like, here's, like, this huge, um, formationally changing technology, like, a la, like, nuclear weapons, and here's what it does to society, and here's what it does if people have the ability to, like, inflict destruction on massive scales. So I think that's really pervasive for culture. In fact, Hao Miyazaki himself, he, um, he said that, the Fukushima disaster was evident of like nuclear power is something like humans should never have been like been privy to and stuff. And he's like hugely um, like critical of it. And I think that's a really huge part of their culture. It's a discussion in their culture, at least really pervasive. Um, so the other notes I have of really interesting things that have struck me as far as like um, Japanese culture, of which there's a huge amount I can go on for, for endless amounts of time, um, like Japanese cuisine, uh, like the documentary uh, Jiro's Dreams of Sushi was really, really big for me. I love sushi. Um, there's an Anthony Bourdain episode where he goes to Okinawa and talks about the differences and like, like the sheer like difference of like Okinawan culture to mainland Japanese culture. It's something that gets overlooked a lot. And there's like people who are really, really diverse there. And he highlights that, which is really cool. Um, some other cool things like Kiki mentioned, like, like the geishas and the tea ceremony. Like there's this, this like, there's roots of traditional Japanese culture that go back really, really far into history that may not be there for like things like America, for example. We don't have roots that go back centuries upon centuries, and they're still there. Um, our tea ceremony is called the Boston Tea Party. Hashtag freedom. Um, um, there's this cool aspect of um, just like 
pottery I think I really like. It's where like when a bowl or a dish gets cracked, they refill the cracks with like the oh, gold. I've seen that. Yeah. And it's like just becomes something's cracked. Doesn't I mean it's yeah. not useful. It just it still becomes more beautiful. Yeah, highlight the cracks. Of being broken. It's worn and yeah, it's, I think that's beautiful. I think I wrote about that in my journal once. Kiki wrote that in her journal once, y'all. It was between two paragraphs of Pokemon reviews. Or yep, episodes. it was. Um, <laughs> it was me saying if I was a type of Pokemon, I think I would probably be a fire type. Because <laughs> um, she burns with passion. Things, things that are broken are more beautiful. <laughs> All right, middle school Kiki hashtag Boggy Peak is coming back out. <laughs> um, so other things that are going on in Japanese culture, like nowadays, is I think Japan's referred to as a blue zone. It's where people leave, live to. Um, a higher than average life expectancy and this has really long lasting effects life average life expectancies in the world and yeah. have been for a pretty long time a lot of people speculate because it's also because of diet because yeah um because of the agricultural scene in japan uh because it's pretty mountainous and rocky um and exposed to a lot of different elements it's pretty hard to grow a lot of different kinds of crops and a big variety of crops so they eat a lot of seafood, uh, which is very healthy. They eat a lot of healthier foods. And also having uh, not as much presence of processed foods like in the Western world oh, yeah. for a much longer amount of time, people learn to eat in a different way, in a healthier way. Also, if you look at like school meals, like public school meals oh, they around look the fantastic. world, they've got some effing delicious looking they meals. They look great. And I think a lot of it is like huh. people learning not only how to cook, but how to eat from an early age. I've also seen something that, like, in a lot of Japanese public schools, um, like, the students are expected to, like, help do the dishes and clean up afterwards and serve each other. And yeah, it's, I've seen and it's stuff like, like it's, that. It's, like, this is a communal part of everyday life. This is not just another, like, thing you yeah. It's not a through. calorie minimum yeah. the same way it is in American public schools. Um, so one thing this, like, blue zone kind of, like, elevated age culture has led to is a difference in, like, population dynamics they have like more and more people who are older and not working and more and more people who are younger and working. And I think the pressures of business culture have affected everything me and Kiki have discussed from like the dating scene where like women have to put the first foot forward, just like people being overworked. I think they just had like a national law passed that said that like, you have to take at least one day off a week. You can't work seven days a week because of the pressures of having to climb that ladder. I remember something like it started as early as middle school where a lot of news reports came out about the pressure on Japanese students and Japanese business people. Oh, yeah. Um, to where people, like, the suicide rate was much higher in the United States. It's extremely high, yeah. Um, and, like, that was, like, I think one of my first exposures to, like, how much people might be working in other places. And I think even those were compared to, like, oh, look how much Americans don't have to work into comparison to these people. But also, Americans work too much. We should take more vacations. But so should the Japanese people. We all should, Kiki. Uh, but building off of what you're saying about the dating scene, too, that's something I've done um, a lot of research about. I say a lot of research. I just read a lot of books, and it comes up a lot as part <laughs> of, like, what's changing globally about dating for young people. Uh, and I read, like, Aziz Ansari's Modern Love has a long chapter on it, uh, and it comes up a lot on different stuff. But it is a big challenge because women have been stepping up more because men are working too much. They don't go out into the dating scene, the government actually has sponsored dating programs for young people to meet because the birth rate is declining at such a rate where it may not be sustainable. There was a headline, I think today, or I think it was last week, um, in the Japanese Times that says, like, not having children is selfish. So there are people who are putting cultural pressures on people to say, hey, you don't have children, that's a selfish move. You're not helping Japan as a whole. But I've also heard that, like, the changing role of women is 
having a huge effect because women are working more. Because the traditional role of women in Japan, as well as most places around the world, is to be a caretaker of the home, a housewife, um, and a primary caregiver. But women who are educated in Japan are more likely to want to work and they don't want to give up their jobs. And they don't want to go like find someone and like give all of that up to get yeah. married. And they don't want to make the choice the same way Western women have taken that choice kind of for granted. Yeah. And men are more likely to want partners who will take care of their home, take care of their kids. So it's a battle between modern and traditional values. It's something that I feel like will be interesting to see how it works out. Like, who, who's going to give in first if the population is going to continue? I think that's a fantastic point, especially because it brings up the whole idea of that dynamic between the cultural and the traditional and the new and the developing. Because you have, like, bullet trains that have Hello Kitty on them. Yeah, and that they, was just out today, wasn't it? Yeah. And, <laughs> so, like, the Hello Kitty bullet train passes through thousand-year-old Tory gates, and you have this, like, all right, traditional thousand year old like shinto culture very respectable very old very understood and reverent almost and here's the hello kitty bullet train the epitome of technology and new and consumption and just the juxtaposition is insane and i think nowhere in the world is that more true than japan well again like even we were talking about the history like the fast rate of westernization where i mean other colonized countries and japanese japan wasn't colonized um but have had a slower rate of development in comparison like like absorbing western technologies as they're released in the chain of colonization so yeah. when when people bring it to them as it becomes necessary but japan being so isolation isolationist yeah for so long and really being into their own culture and developing their own strong strong culture being compared with the vast whammy of the 20th century changing world and like the 21st century whatever the we're doing it now. was a whammy that century uh, uh, whammy <laughs> nice anchorman reference <laughs> whammy uh but anyway so like i think that's just like one of the many ways that you're saying bradley like that we are watching as like spectators i'm not gonna say like they're performing but anyway it's it's something that's happening in the in the change between traditional and modern values and it's happening so fast that it's it's hard to imagine what it's like to be in that kind of culture, to be maybe growing up in a traditional household, but choosing a non-traditional household for yourself despite pressures from other side while looking at other Western worlds that have had those drugs forever. I'd even imagine like what we call like a Scandinavian country now where gender equality is at its highest. Like if that's like the ideal, America's not even close to that. I don't know. Yeah, most of the like so like the documentaries that I see, like more like slice of life kind of like things to learn about Japan. It seems like there's this this like separation between all right. Um, there's one documentary I watched where it was like a like a sake distillery, and they're making sake the exact same way for like hundreds of years, and everyone does it because their dad did it, and it goes back generations. Or like the people who were like doing like the fishing for like like the fishing markets who prepared like like the fish for like the like the most traditional like sushi restaurants like they are doing these things because it's long-rooted traditions they've been doing them for so long but like that's a really interesting like life to have in like, like a sphere like tokyo which has like this whole like neon cyberpunk feel there's 10 million people in tokyo and they're like bustling and trying to be the most modern city in the world and it's just it's really interesting i was like uh 
I'm I'm so impressed, and I feel like we are both going to talk about this too. So this may be an unnatural segue, but our consumption of Japanese culture as white American millennials has been a real life changer for both. Oh, of us. I watch hell anime, um, and I've done since since like a really young age. Yeah, that's like so. I I, I just put it out there. Brad and I were both really into Pokemon, and Brad and I are both still kind of into Pokemon. What do you mean we're into Pokemon? (laughs) Unashamed, I'm into Pokemon. It's I love it. I remember, like, it came out when I was in kindergarten, and has not been insignificant to my life since. But I was consuming it before I realized I was consuming something from a different culture. So when we brought up in, like, the Heian period, the costuming differences in a Japanese cartoon that had been dubbed into English, that was something I was consuming without realizing that it wasn't part of the Western tradition. And having that incorporated into my life so easily and remembering it even when I was doing my research, watching Pokemon, and there's several episodes on Pokemon that bring really strong parts of Japanese culture I will also bring up parts that definitely flopped, like when they have rice balls and Brock calls them donuts. Donuts, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is a really great jolly donut, guys. Loss in translation. But anyway, um, but anything on like WB Kids, so it wasn't just Pokemon, it was uh, Digimon, whatever. Dragon Ball Z. You mean fake Pokemon? Yeah, I mean fake Pokemon is what I mean. (laughs) Edgy Uh, Pokemon. (laughs) But there's Digimon, I I was talking about Cardcaptor Sakura, um... And, and shows like that, that really did, like, put that that basis for what I would later learn. And as soon as, like, I got to middle school and I had more free access to the internet and resources and I was largely unsupervised, I did read Memoirs <laughs> of a Geisha when I was 13. A little too young. Which is a little too young to Just be reading Memoirs bit. of a Geisha. Um, but I got really into, like, more animes that were made for my teen groups. Like, they're called, like, Shoujo. So I read... Ma- mangas, mangas. I'm sorry. Mangas, I'm, yeah. I'm not good at being, but like I read like these super appealing stories that would challenge my Western beliefs almost all the time. Cause I also grew up in a pretty conservative Catholic household. So when I was reading about, um, let's say like a character in one of the animes I was really into who was a cross dresser or someone who was transgender, it really did give me that perspective before it came into something that I would come to know and be familiar with. And I do wonder if like that planted the seed with familiarity so that I came to accept it before many other people my age did because I had some kind of background for it that showed me that it was normal at least one place in the world and it became better for me. I can empathize. I think that the amount of time I've spent playing things like Final Fantasy games. Yeah, Final Fantasy. Okay. And Nintendo games. I will interrupt only very briefly <laughs> because I was talking with a friend the other day about Kingdom Hearts and Final Fantasy. Oh, don't get me started on Kingdom Hearts. We don't need to get into it too much. But we're talking about how like those games are so hard to play because there's no discernible plot. But that's like a common theme in Japanese games. Okay, that- Kingdom Hearts has too much plot, Kiki. <laughs> there's like, there's too much going on. But that's like, who knows what's happening on Kingdom Hearts or in Final Fantasy. I guess, like, uh, there's some that had, like, a definitive definitive end, but... (laughs) So my point was, so, like, (laughs) the story arcs of, like, and these long, like, like, so, like, JRPGs. I spent thousands of hours of my life playing, like, Japanese RPG games and Nintendo games. And, like, for me, my brother's, like, watching Goku go Super Saiyan for the first time in Dragon Ball (laughs) Z and watching, like, Yu Yu Hakusho. Like, these shounen anime, like, story arcs. This was, like, the meat of our childhoods as far as, like, enjoyment and what we thought, like, like stories and narratives should be. And that still, like, defines what we, like, enjoy and share with each other. And I think, like, that's all, like, Japanese pure culture 
that the West imported because they knew that it was, I mean, in the early 90s when we were watching cartoons, like, it was hard to find anime. If you didn't find a dub on TV, you had to, like, find a VHS of it somewhere. And now it's really, it's everywhere because of, like, streaming sites, like Kiki mentioned earlier. So, I mean, because it hit when we were kids, it's so formative for us. That's why it hits me so hard. That's why, like, everything from, like, sushi and ramen to, like, what I play on games and what I watch on TV, it, it seems normal and it still seems, like, like fun and interesting because I was exposed to it in an early age. I think Kiki had a story where, like, like her parents didn't approve of, like, manga or something like that because they weren't exposed to it. They didn't get it. Right. So, I mean, in my conservative household, too, I also had grandparents who were both in World War II. Um, and we're talking, like, World War II recovery period and growing up in a family that was super America-centric and, like, focused on those things. Like, my, my grandfathers were both in the Pacific. Um, and so, like, even growing up, I don't want to, like, demonize my mom in any way, but there was kind of, like, a stronger reaction, negative reaction to Japanese culture and Japanese people when it came out that that's what was happening. And I would say it's unfairly deserved. I'm willing to give my mom that criticism. But... What was I going to say? I think your main point was just that your mom had a an initial negative reaction to you reading the manga because it felt like a disservice to your family who had, like, fought Japanese Right, that's people. kind of what I was saying. It's like, and, like, no one thinks that way about German people or Italian people we're talking about World War II era yeah. dynamics. Um, and it's just kind of that othering and that... Yeah. It, and it's it's mostly because Japanese culture in the American culture is the first non-Western mega stream that we've had that challenges. Yeah, it's everything. it's both the most foreign and the most prominent in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it's like so for our generation, like in in some having that early exposure and having it be a regular part of my life, growing up to who I am now, doesn't seem so out of place. But maybe to somebody else from an older generation it may seem like a, some sort of challenge to traditional Western values, I would say. So, Kiki, I think we both had an interesting back and forth. We could I probably keep talking about this forever. We could talk for hours. Um, it could be two episodes if you really wanted it to be easily. But I think we're gonna, we need to take a second break, come back, do some current events, and round out Japan with some later ratings. You think so? I think that's a super great idea. I love how you took my line. You really took control of this podcast. <laughs> take that out. We don't need it. back from the break we're here for our section on final thoughts brad are there any changes in your initial rating from the beginning of the episode i believe you had a six what do you feel now so i think from an initial six which was not a super strong rating but like a foothold in that i definitely have room to grow i think i'm going to go up to a 7.5 because i feel like the only barrier to me like being really familiar with japan as a country is me like learning the language and taking a visit of which I could do both in my lifetime than I want to. So 7.5, that is an optimistic kind of leeway into Brad wants to learn more about Japan, he can do it. Kiki? Um, I'll take this opportunity to say if you are a sponsor who would like to send Brad and I to Japan, we are fully amenable to discussing with you the ways that we could get to Japan. Um, I will take my initial rating of a 5 to, I think, like, yeah, a 7 or a 7.25. 
Not, you know, a full seven and a half. That's a seven and one fourth, I believe. Yeah, a seven and a quarter. And freedom units. Um, I do feel like I'm familiarizing myself because, like, there was a lot more research that I did that I couldn't go through on the podcast because of time. Um, but understanding way more about those time periods and the influence they had on what Japan is now. Uh, not even to mention, like, current culture and current trends of Japan. Oh, yeah. Like, there's, there's, I think that Final Frontier for me also is modern Japan. Um, also, in the podcast, like, covering more of Japan in the last hundred years would honestly be a good separate podcast episode if we oh, yeah. ever have to double back on things. It's because there's just, it's just so much, and you can't even begin to understand how much there is until you start looking at it and you realize there is a rabbit hole for every single thing here. Yeah, like 6,000 islands, culture on each one, peoples, different mm-hmm. ethnic groups, different languages, really, and infinite. Like, to examine things like how much influence China had over feudal Japan or even looking farther back into what Japan was before recorded history because, like, I mean, there's there's evidence of what these people were like. You just have to find the right places. But anyway, I feel like I do know more. I would love to learn more, as always. Uh, and I get yeah. So I, I've boosted two two and a quarter percent. Anyway, well said. Yes. So that concludes our discussion on Japan for this week. We're going to take another quick break, and then we will finish up with current events. Do we need another quick break? I don't think we do. Let's power through, Kiki. You know, Current events. What, I... are you, what are you reading this week? Okay, so um, as like as is the tradition for the past three weeks, <laughs> or three episodes, I say on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I want to take a break. It's only been like a minute. We're gonna take a break. I'm so right So, folks, the tiniest of breaks was just taken. Kiki's gonna tell you about the book she's reading this week. So, as you guys remember from the past three episodes, it's my new goal of the podcast to, instead of just telling you guys, like, oh, I wrote this book for my own interest, I'm trying to read authors um, and stories from from the countries that we're covering. Mm-hmm. So, either books about it or authors from it. So, fortunately, I've actually gotten um, pretty far in to three books I read After the Quake by Haruki Murakami. Haruki Murakami is a pretty prominent Japanese author, from what I understand. Um, Lots of works, a lot of um, really interesting cultural things. After the Quake was a selection of short stories that was released in 2000 based on the 1995 earthquake in Kobe, but by people who weren't directly impacted by it, but had like some kind of like connection to the quake. It was very interesting. What I felt was like a standout of it is that none of the stories ever seemed to conclude. And I wasn't sure if that was like a common theme with Murakami's work. But that was a interesting read. I also read a murder mystery called, let me find it right here. That sounds like Kiki. The Devotion of Suspect X. Um, and like, I'm not much of a murder mystery person. Yeah, you are. I, I like I like true crime. Oh, okay, okay. But like, reading books, I'm like, Agatha Christie, who do you think you are? Dumb bitch. Just kidding. Agatha Christie's great. I'm sure. Wow, but this was called fire. Yeah, this is called The Devotion of Suspect X by Keigo Higashino. And it was very, because um, I have read Murder Mysteries before. I'm not just pulling that out like, I don't like it. But, like, it did seem like very Western in its structure, but tied into a lot of, I don't know, like, modern Japanese 
like trends and stuff and like mentioning a lot of names and places and like a lot of callbacks to the stuff that I was researching is very interesting read and it's part of a larger series called the detective Galileo series so it's kind of like a you know Hercule Poirot um, (laughs) figure in Japan where it's like this guy who's a genius who helps police solve crimes based on his genius knowledge of people and yeah. their motivations and stuff like that like deductive reasoning kind of stuff yeah like that okay. exactly yeah and then the one i just started um because it was delayed and it's and it's coming to me is a book by ruth ozeki called a, a tale for the time being i'm only in the second chapter um but the premise is like there is a diary that washes up on shore of like a 16 year old girl before the 2011 tsunami and then tsunami tides take the diary in a hello kitty lunchbox that's like watertight to the shores of british columbia where a japanese american author picks it up and starts reading about this girl's life um and it's super interesting so far i really do sounds awesome um other things that i've read because i've just been I've been pretty free at my internship. Um, and also, if you guys don't know me personally, I spend nine hours in my car commuting to and from my internship. So I get to read a lot of audiobooks at this time. And also, I'm unsupervised. And no one, like, I can do, I can listen to books while I'm working. So I also listened to um, A Connecticut Yankee in New York. And we'll cover that way yeah. more in our American episode. Scandinavians by Robert Ferguson. So this was a book about discovering the heart of Scandinavian melancholy from the perspective of a British emigrant to Norway. I did finish The Polish Boxer, which we talked about in our Guatemalan episode, by Eduardo Halfan. Um, I wouldn't read it again. It was interesting in many (laughs) ways, um, but I just don't think I connected to it the same way I have in some other books uh let's see i feel like i finished another book in this time but you know what it doesn't super matter right now we'll cover them later but any of those are the books i read if you want to see a list of them they'll be on our blog later if you want to talk to me about books at any time you certainly can anyway brad what are your final thoughts um so my final thoughts just some of the stuff i'm doing this week i'm still watching the world cup we're getting the last um... <laughs> Ugh, still just Ugh. kidding. The World Cup is cool. I've teared up at a few BuzzFeed stories about it. <laughs> so um, the last group stage games are happening where teams who know they're eliminated are fighting for, you know, just like just some pride, um, like Peru. Um, and then some teams who don't know if they're going to move on to the to the uh, round of 16 yet are really fighting for their spot. Like Nigeria and Argentina had an instant classic kind of game today. It was fun to watch. Another thing I'm doing is I'm going to shout out to one of my favorite charities here. It's called Summer Games Done Quick. It's so bear with me, people. This is gonna review my nerdiness. It's a Brad. I'm pretty sure we all know what that you're a huge nerd. <laughs> so it's a speed run. It's a speed running video game marathon where people play video games as fast as possible for a week straight. Um, they play different games, different casters, different um, like people on the couches, like explain what's going on in the video games or what the glitches they're doing or whatever. But it's a constant marathon charity that raises money for Doctors Without Borders. They raise about. Almost $2 million per event. It happens every summer. Um, it's really, really cool. If you want to get into some niche nerd cultures and people who, like, like they never fit in and they finally found their community, it's the speedrunning gaming community. I mean, these people are just the most wholesome and accepting folks on Earth. I mean, if you love a video game, people speedrun it. Go find out. Go watch SCGQ. Donate a little bit of money. Get, get into the, the raffle for some prizes. I think it's great. And as a nonprofit kind of concentration major... 
I think it's a cool thing. So is there a way that we can support you directly? Well, and I don't. It's do like it. a way to pledge it. Oh, well, I don't do anything for it. I just oh, watch no, it. Mind. But oh, I mean, it's, okay. it's a constant stream. You can just like turn on the stream. It goes for twenty four hours um, for this whole week, so you can just watch it. It's just fun. It's just a cool thing that if you're not privy to the whole like the dredges of video game community, you're not going to find it. But I think it's fun. That's nice. Yeah. So summer games done quick. Give it a Google. It's a cool look. I did see one thing. I think I sent it to you um, as a link, Brad, about the World Cup, and it was a Japanese woman who gave her kimono to. Yes, I saw this. Her lucky shirt, and she passed. No, it's a kimono, for sure. It's a real kimono. Oh, yeah. shit, that's awesome. Um, And it was, like, her lucky kimono that she would wear for every game, and then she... What game did they lose? It was the game for Senegal. Senegal. So, yeah, so she gave hers to a Senegalian fan so that she would have the luck now. I and also saw That's one. like, I don't care about sports, but I care about people coming together for sports. I also saw a three-minute video of three Japanese fans singing the One Piece theme song with a Senegalese fan. <laughs> and they are belting out loud as possible with beers in hand, and they hug afterwards. And I just fucking love the World Cup, And that's y'all. like the shit I love. I'm I, about it. I just, like, I can't make myself care about things I don't care about, but I just care about What a people. great statement, Geeky. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking. <laughs> Deep. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> I don't care about sports. Um, actually, I was saying, never mind, I'm not going to say that on this podcast, but you'll see it on my Twitter um, if you guys follow me on Twitter. Which you should. Yeah. How about, but, yeah. How about Kiki Plugs, the blog and yeah. the Twitter, and then we'll get into our next episode. Yeah, for sure. That's a great way to end this episode gracefully. Uh, so you can find our podcast on Twitter at, at the world podcast. Uh, you will there find constant updates about our episodes, funny things written by me. <laughs> um, been trying to work on some puns. Anyway, we would love to have your followership and we we'll always follow back. Also, our blog where you will find all of our resources for every episode, ideally when we get around to it. Um, that is the world as we know at podcast.wordpress.com. And you can also find us now on Facebook. We're a Facebook page. It's the world as we know at podcast. And there you can also find some sweet information. Please share us with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and review. We do have one new review for us. Um, please hold while I get another. Here it is. It is by a community member named Big Gapper. Wow. I don't know what that means. What a name. Uh, and it, the title is... It's a five-star, by the way. South Sudan episode correction. It says, Brad, murderinos, in quotes, the true crime communities, exist in the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, not the dozens. Um, if you'll remember, Brad tried to correct me when I was talking about my interest in true crime on the South Sudan episode. And Kiki is not alone, is what Big Gapper says. But great episode on South Sudan. Can't wait for more episodes. Um, Big Gapper, thank you so much for your review. She sounds attractive. Five stars. Wow. Yeah. I really think she's like a 10 out of 10. I'm assuming gender. He or she is like a 10 out of 10. I mean, Big Gapper's the big hottie kiki. I think, yeah. I wonder, what a name though. Big Gapper. Hmm. Anyway, thanks Big Gap for your review. Anybody else can get their hotness rated by us. Uh, I mean... If someone wants to give us a critical review, I think we might be a little more critical about our uh, ratings. I'm not going to take that chance, Kiki. <laughs> but I guess we need to get more reviews to find out. Uh, <laughs> and you can do that on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of The World As We Know It. Catch us next week for our country. USA! 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 <laughs> USA. <laughs> and until then, sayonara! sayonara.